right, well, hello, everybody. And um, tonight's going to sound like you're getting yelled at. Because you are. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we are in James chapter 4. I'm very grateful for this chapter. I'm grateful to be able to present this chapter because as I was preparing these notes, which are available to you, hopefully you have them, and online as well, um, it unpacks so much of what happens in, in like counseling sessions. So this is like, this is like a, a major group counseling session today in James chapter 4, okay? So if you do come to see me for counseling, I'm probably going to say, watch the, the tape, okay? Watch, watch the video or something. This, this gets to the root of a lot of things, and when the Bible gets to the root of something, it means it's going to dig a little, right? So it's going to dig a little, and you're going to hear James's passion towards it, uh, his zeal towards all this stuff. But I think this could serve to be one of the most helpful chapters uh, we've covered. So I'd like everybody to really just be very introspective about it because it's so easy to hear this stuff and then think of somebody else that you think it pertains to and go, I sure hope they're listening. Um, but the fact of the matter is they're hoping you're listening, right? So let's just all listen together uh, on it. I already had this knife carved through me with the hours I spent preparing this, so I've done my bleeding. It's time for you to do yours, okay? It's not that bad. It is. It's that bad. All right. Okay. So we'll see how it goes. All right. So let's pray that God will do a, a faithful work in us uh, through his word because, you know, a verse I've been sharing with all the students, no matter if it's my small group, whether it's a lunch Bible study I'm doing or, or my classes, I've been sharing Romans 10:17 a lot, and you know that verse. It's faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But you know how things happen where you could be reading this stuff for 30 years and all of a sudden you go, oh, I think I get it now. That happened with Romans 10:17 because I realize that either hearing the word of God or reading the word of God that is the single number one help of my faith. More than any person I know, more than my, even my prayer life, the greatest thing for, to nourish my faith is this word of God. And it says faith comes by hearing the word of God. The more I hear it, the more I believe it. The more I read it, the more I believe it. The more I can carry it into the world and, and live by it and not offend it. The more I can be true to it and not hypocritical. It really, really is reading the Word of God, showing up at church, hearing the Word of God. Uh, whenever you can, just having the Word of God enter your ears. Hearing comes by the Word of God. And one of the, one of the woes that Isaiah is told by God to pronounce upon rebellious Israel is, hearing you shall not hear. So God will actually stuff your ears, stop your ears from comprehending what you're hearing as a fruit of your disobedience and your unrighteousness. So hearing is precious, right? Hearing the word of God is what builds the faith that keeps you as a branch attached to the vine. So you, I've heard about these worship leaders who have walked away from the faith. They've written worship songs, they've led people in worship, and now they're publicly walking away from the faith. And one of them was a rapper, Christian rapper, and one of the things that he said was, I've written Christian rap songs for years and years and years, but I've never really, in that whole time of performing and traveling, I've, I've not read my Bible in all that time. And he walks away from the faith. And so I want to say, of course you did. Of course you did, okay? So um, just sharing the verse that's really meant a lot to me this week, and I've been sharing it with everybody, and you're a part of that group called Everybody. So, sharing it with you, okay? All right. All right, you're saying that's not what we paid all this free money for, so get to James already, all right. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, and I thank you for a room full of Christians. I thank you for a room full of people who are nourished by your word, Lord, and that's our greatest commonality with each other in this room is that 
We've all found your word to be our life, Lord, to be our health, our nourishment, our direction, our guide, our lamp, our light. And God, we pray that um, this time we spend in your word right here, right now, would mean the world, uh, Lord, to our, to our walk with you. It mean the world to you, Lord, that you would take great delight and joy at our sitting and hearing from you tonight. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so chapter 3 finishes. The last two verses of chapter 3 say, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. <clears throat> so again, None of these biblical authors are writing chapter by chapter by chapter. They just wrote one flowing letter. It's people later on divided it up into chapters. So the, the continued flow of James's thought after talking about the wisdom that's from above and how pure and peaceable it is, his thought continues by saying, so where do wars and fights come from among you? He's saying there's a wisdom that's from above. We should be the people tapping into that wisdom from above. So if we're doing that, the question is why, where are these wars and fights coming from among you? Now, these are not international wars. These are not military wars he's talking about. He's using a word to describe the, the relational um, trouble that we get into with one another. And it's most often seen... And the deepest wounds happen between people that really care about each other. So you get people that really, really care about one another, and yet their lives are miserable because they walk around with this dark cloud over their head all the time because they're just not at peace with people they love. And James is looking at that within the Christian uh, household and saying, where are these fights and wars coming from amongst you? And then he suggests, it says, he says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now, he says, desires for pleasures. Now, I'm going to say, in however many years I've been counseling, however many years I've been teaching, the greatest single pleasure I see pursued that leads to fights and quarrels is the pleasure of simply being right. It is destroying people all the time, this desire to be right. People will be right, want to be right at any cost. And so I don't know if I've ever done a marriage counseling where the major problem of their compatibility is that they're arguing, they're both thinking they're right, and even when it gets to the point where one finally discovers, oh my gosh, I'm wrong, they keep fighting for their point, not because they think the point is right, but they're fighting for their point because they've been wounded and insulted and embarrassed by the person arguing with them, and they now have way too much pride to go, yes, you're right. So therefore, I'm going to fight with you because I'm hurt and wounded by you, so I'm just going to keep on fighting. But because you don't have a right point to argue, now you sound even sillier to them because you're willing to argue a wrong point just so you can keep yelling back at them. And so it just builds and builds and builds and builds. So James is saying, what is it? It's, it's your desire for pleasure that war in your members. So he has a suggestion. He says, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you don't have because you don't ask. Now this is amazing writing to me. His word murder here is the type of murder that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 5, where he says, if you're angry at your brother, you're guilty of his murder. Okay? So Jesus takes the outward action of murder and says, you don't have to actually commit that outward act of murder. You just have to have hatred for your brother in your heart, because when God judges the heart, he sees the angry heart is not much different from the murderous heart. So he says, you're the same person. He says the same thing with lust and adultery, right? The adulterer acts out on his lust. The lustful person didn't act out on it, but their hearts were the same, okay? So Jesus raises the bar in our judgment to say, you didn't have to do it. You just had to want to do it to be guilty. So that's how he's using murder here. You murder 
and you covet. And you go, murder's really, really bad. Coveting's just like this very private sin that doesn't do anybody any harm and all that. So why is he putting those two together? Well, in Romans 7, Paul will say, he says, he's talking about that the law is good and holy. So it's an amazing chapter. It's like you have to read it like 50 times, no kidding, to go, I think I'm connecting dots here in this chapter. But he says the law is good and holy. And then he says the law actually provokes your desires to sin. So if you say to somebody, whatever you do, don't touch this. They didn't want to touch it before. But now they really want to touch it. Because you gave them a law. And that law is provoking them to break the law. Yet Paul says, but the law is still good and holy. Because when God gives us the law... The law is our directive on how to live righteous and holy. So the law is good and holy, but that law is given not to holy people, but to sinful people. So what do sinful people do with holy law? They get a desire to actually break it. You actually want to break it, okay? So when you paint a bench and you need it to dry, what's the last thing you should do? Say, wet paint, because not everybody's touching it, right? Okay? Put up a sign that says, keep off the grass. And see how many feet just do that to you, right? Okay? Paul says the law is good and holy, but when received by sinful hearts, it actually provokes that sinful heart to break that law. Okay? So now, he says, Paul said, I didn't even know that do not covet was a law until I read the law and it said do not covet and then he said, it provoked in me every desire to covet. And that law now killed me. You say, well, that's a strong thing to say, Paul, that the law of coveting actually killed you. But the wages of your sin is death. Not of your mass amounts of sin. The wages of one sin is death. Like, don't eat that apple. And they do, right? The wages of the sin is death. Obedience to holy God, justice is death. To that whole, for that, because it was a holy God that you offended. So James says you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. So think how much effort goes into murdering and coveting. He's saying there's a lot of effort that you're putting in. You're doing all this to obtain and yet you haven't attained. He says, he says you fight and you war. These are the strongest possible words for trying to obtain something. You're murdering, you're coveting, you're fighting, you're warring, and yet you do not have. How futile are our efforts, right? How futile. It says you're fighting for all this. Listen, everybody wants to be happy. Most people get married because they think this is going to make me happy. And then for the first time in their life, they're in counseling because they're so not happy, right? Okay. So... We, we are doing everything we can to be happy, and the more we try to be happy, the more miserable we become. And James is trying to get to the root of this here. And he says four very strong words, okay? You, you fight, you war, you murder, you covet, and you still don't have. And then he says this, and you don't have because you don't ask. Can you imagine hearing that after you're fighting, you're warring, you're covetering, coveting, and you're murdering? And then you go, how come with all of this I don't have? And then you hear this, you didn't ask. You didn't ask. This could be a big part of this chapter, okay? But now watch what he says. You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So, now he says you have, but you don't have because you don't ask. So it's another startling statement. You're fighting, you're warring, you're quarreling, you're murdering, you're coveting, yet you still have, you don't have, you don't have because you don't ask. And then when you ask, you don't have because you ask wrongly. Now, when I hear you don't have because you don't ask, another big verse, this isn't just this week for me, but really for this year has been for me, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what I'm understanding from that verse is, that when the Lord is shepherding you, which is always, but when you're actually receiving the shepherding of the Lord, 
you're submitted to his authority and you're receiving his shepherding and you're asking his counsel and when you receive that counsel, it doesn't matter what your previous will was. It's not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. And that's how you're living, receiving the shepherding of the Lord. The promise of that verse is then your wantiness goes away. Your wantiness. Now he says, listen, you're doing all this to obtain and you're not obtaining. And even when you ask, you're not getting what you're asking for because you're asking wrongly. And he says you're asking wrongly because you're asking to receive, to, to feed your own pleasures, okay? And I'm saying, I think one of the most sinful pleasures I see in our society is the sinful pleasure of just wanting to be right. So here's your prayer. Lord, please show her that she's wrong. Just show her, Lord, right? Okay, I'm asking you, Lord, okay? I clearly see how wrong she is and she doesn't see it. Just open her eyes, Lord, open her ears, okay? Show her she's wrong. You know what the Apostle Paul says in another letter? Wouldn't you just rather be wronged? Can't you just prefer to be wronged by somebody? Why do you have to be right? Do you know how much strength it takes to be right and know the other person's wrong and just say, okay. Because if the Lord is shepherding you, do you think that you're deciding that this isn't worth a fight, so therefore I'm not gonna sit here and prove over and over again that I'm right? Because remember, even if you do prove it, the other person's very likely still to argue just because of the pride issue. It takes a lot of humility to say, oh my gosh, I get it now, you're right and I'm wrong. How many of you can say, that happens in my arguments all the time. They always do that. Or I do that all the time. It's a very hard thing to do. You know why? Because humility requires tremendous spiritual strength. And not many of us have it. Humility requires more strength than anything that it ever took you to win an argument. And that's why nobody does it. Okay? So, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When you're receiving the shepherding of the Lord, you're going to see that you'll have the strength to be meek and humble, and you'll also have the wisdom to know when this isn't worth, there's a bigger price to pay for showing I'm right than there is just to be wronged at this point in time. There's a bigger price to pay to prove I'm right than there is in just being wronged. If you're a lawyer, I'm killing your business right now, okay? Now, I quote Spurgeon a lot. You get in the book of James commentaries, Charles Spurgeon has amazing things to say about this book. Um, so I'm gonna quote him in a second. I wrote in your notes, here's a spiritual law. God does not give unless we ask. If we possess little of God in his kingdom, almost certainly we have asked little. Here, here he is. Remember this text. Jehovah says to his own son, ask of me and I'll give thee the heavens, that should say heaven, not heathen, and I will give the heaven for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He says to his own son, ask of me and I'll give it to you. So Spurgeon says, if the royal and divine son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Why should it be? If you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. And I beseech you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate, to pray, stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be experienced by prayer. Charles Spurgeon. Okay. So he says, you, verse 3, you ask, you do not receive, because you ask amiss to spend it on your pleasures. Even at the point of our being humble enough to ask, we still have to battle the sin within us because we learn that we have pursued happiness through selfish means. That's what 
asking him rightly will show us. You're asking out of a selfish means. So we understand that we should ask God, but we may still only be asking so that our selfish pleasures will be satisfied through God. So James says we don't receive in these types of instances. Back to Charles Spurgeon. When a man so prays, he asks, when he prays selfishly for his own pleasures, he asks God to be his servant and gratify his desires. Nay, worse than that, he wants God to join him in the service of his lusts. He will gratify his lusts and God shall come and help him to do it. Such prayer is blasphemous, but a large quantity of it is offered and it must be one of the most God-provoking things that heaven ever beholds. Now, when James says, you ask to spend it on your pleasures, that word spend is the same word we see with the prodigal son in 1514 when it says he spent all his father's inheritance on his own pleasures. It's saying when you pray selfishly, that's what you're doing. You're being that prodigal that's taking what the father is willing to give and using it like the prodigal in that story used the father's wealth. Okay? And all kinds of wrong living. Destructive desires persist even if we pray because our prayers may be self-centered and self-indulgent. So therefore, our desires remain, but they're destructive desires. Therefore, you will still want because the Lord is not shepherding you there. So Psalm 23 becomes irrelevant in your life. Verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. I'm 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 reading, I'm not addressing you. Okay. <laughs> this is James, so this is an inspired rebuke, not from me. He says, adulterers and adulterers. Now, why does he start with that? He's, he's saying, listen, you're selfish, and you're warring, and you're fighting, and all these, your life is miserable, because people you really care about, you're, you're not in good relationship with, so now holidays come, and it's awkward to have family over, because because of the disputes that have been happening. You can't find peace or relief. All these things are happening to you. And he says, you're guilty of adultery. Why? Because you are the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of this marriage. Jesus Christ has instructed us on how to carry out this marriage. Now, I want you to turn to Ruth chapter 1 for just a moment. Because I want you to hear from this Gentile woman what this marriage covenant with Christ should look like. It's one of the most marvelous speeches in all of Scripture given by this Gentile woman. And you can picture yourself on the day of your salvation when you were saved, this is the covenant that you entered into with Jesus Christ. She says to Naomi, when Naomi's inviting her to stay in... Moab and not go to, to Bethlehem with her because as a Gentile woman, she's not going to find very many Jewish men that will marry her, so she's better off in Moab. But Ruth instead re refuses that invitation to stay in Moab. She wants to go to Bethlehem with Naomi. And she says in chapter 1, verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, you take that and you go, I want my way. And James is saying, you're breaking the marriage covenant. Because Ruth's attitude was, listen, never mind my gods and my people. I want your God and your people. So wherever you go, I'm going to go. That's what we're saying to the Lord, right? Lord, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you go, I follow. Okay, your people are my people. Your father is my father. Okay? And where she ends with nothing but death will separate us we can say not even death will separate us, right? Okay, so he says adulterers and adulteresses because you're in this marriage relationship with Jesus Christ 
And he's about to tell us that the antidote for all of this chaos is humility. So if we're, if we're acting proudly without humility, then we're cheating on the one who is our head in this marriage because he's instructed us to be humble. There's only two words Jesus ever used to describe himself. You know what they are? Here's El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. And when he's on earth, he only uses two words. What are they? He says, I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. Okay? And this is the one that says, it says of him that all things were created through him and of all the things that have been made, nothing was made except for that was made through him. And in Genesis 1, it talks about the sun, the moon, and it says, and he made the stars also. That one says, yeah, I did make all the stars, but I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. Okay? So, so James is going to get into a bit of a rebuke as he considers who we are, who he is, and what our attitudes are towards one another and how it does not match somebody who's in a marriage covenant with Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, well, in verse 4 it says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, the world is very, very much about winning and being right. You walk into any bookstore, you look through Amazon at books, and a great majority of self-help books, books where you can help yourself and be better uh, person and all this, are all going to be about somehow you winning, somehow about being right, somehow about obtaining and getting. And all of that is friendship with the world. Okay. All of that is friendship with the world. You can have all that if you've received it. If the Lord has called you to it and you've received it. Okay. But it's, it's, it's way too easy to get to the top of ladders if other people are the rungs that you're stepping on to get there. Okay. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? All right, so why is friendship with the world enmity with God? James says, do you think it's in vain that the scripture says that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? What reference did that come from? What book of the Bible, what verse? Anybody know? It's not in there. So what is James talking about? The scripture says it. It does. It does say that God, many times it says he's a jealous God. Okay, so. Yeah, so this quote is not in there, but the idea is in there. And I gave you one, two, three, four, five verses as reference. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, says this. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Same chapter, verse 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. That's actually a prophecy of what we're in right now. Um, Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall, have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Uh, Zechariah 8, 2. Now, Zechariah 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. Now, why is that in a jealousy verse? Because the zeal of God pursuing us, that when he sees our affections go elsewhere, he becomes a jealous God. Now, many of you are right now asking what question? I thought jealousy was a sin, right? So how could God be a jealous God? Okay, yeah. So the difference is to be, you can be jealous of someone and you can be jealous for someone. If you're jealous of them, you wish you were them, right? Okay, God is not saying, my gosh, I wish I was that idol. I'm so jealous of that idol. He's jealous for the affection you're giving that idol or giving whatever, okay? So that's the affection he desires from us because isn't that what happens when you love somebody? You, you're, you're, you desire their affection back, okay? So he gets jealous for us, not of us. Imagine God saying, you're amazing, I wish I were you. That would just be absurd, right? So, yes. All right, so uh, verse 6. Now, so he just said this, the scripture does not say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. He says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. So with all of this, he's saying, it's like Paul in Romans when he talks about, hey, when you sin, you're given grace. When you sin, you're given grace. And he says, now here's what you're going to say in your sinful heart. Wow, grace is a good thing, and I get it when I sin, so I should sin more, so I get more of the good thing called grace, okay? And Paul says, when you, when you say that, he says, you're, you're foolish and your condemnation's deserved. It's only condemned heart is going to take the grace of God and use it as a license to sin, okay? So um, here he says, now God's a jealous God, but he, when your affections go elsewhere, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, the word resist has military tones to it. When you resist the enemy force, okay? So this, he's resisting the proud. So when we act in pride, like, we just don't want to be wrong type of pride, God resists us in that. And, and so James starts his chapter by saying, you want to know where wars and fights come from among you? Okay, your desire to be right all the time can make God actually resist you. And so Paul will say, wouldn't you just rather be wronged? Now, there, this is not an invitation to be a doormat for people. Do you understand that? There's a wisdom involved with all this. In fact, the word wisdom is going to come up soon. Okay, um, you know, I've got a, a pretty close friend who, um, you, could, you can call him an activist. I mean, he's, he's on the scenes and he's doing his thing and he's yelling at politicians and he's videotaping their responses and he's social media posting and, and he, he's getting things done. Like he's, um, he's actually accomplished some pretty impressive things uh, recently. I think one of them was uh, he, 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 he videotaped himself at Broward, uh, what's that place called, Broward Center for the Pointing Arts because they did a drag queen show where they said it's open for all ages. And so he knew that children go to these shows and he knows that they actually have these children participate in some of their weird sexual stuff. So he went there, bought a ticket, spent $100 to get in, and then when they started in with the children, he stood up. And he started saying, this is wrong. There's children here. What are you doing? And all this. And the, the, the star drag queen person was like, you owe this person an apology, you know, type of thing for speaking up like this and everything. And he's like, no, this is wrong and everything. And so he starts walking out before he gets tossed out. And the police are out there and they're escorting him off. And, and, he, and so... Um, I can't remember exactly what happened. I know, Diana, you know, right? That he helped 
it get to a point where they're not going to do that anymore there, correct? I think that's right. Where Broward Center is not showing those shows there anymore. Okay. So, um, yeah. I, I honestly can't remember why I brought that up. All right. Okay. So, what's that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a military type of term. It, 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 it puts God uh, resisting you in your pride. Maybe the word pride hit me that way. I don't know. I don't remember. But anyway, that's what happened. Okay. All right. But he gives grace to the humble. So now he said, listen, in all this chaos, he gives more grace. Now the question is, well, who gets that grace? He's saying, well, listen, the fights and quarrels are because of pride. The grace is coming to the humble. So if you want to straighten out the fights and the quarrels that are amongst you, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to get rid of the pride. You're going to have to willing to be wronged. Okay. Um, I think it, it was Diana's mother actually was famous for saying, you know, as far as like crossing the street and things like that, say, well, I have the right away. Said, yeah, you could be right, but you could be dead right sometimes, right? Okay, you could be right, but you could be dead right, okay? So I'd rather be wronged and not get hit by the car, right? You can have the right away, even though it was mine, because I choose the better, th I choose to keep on walking and living and all that stuff, right? So he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we're given the antidote to our poisonous nature. It's the very thing that's most contrary to our nat nature is humility, Okay, we're by very, by, by our very nature, we, we feel pride, we feel proud, okay? Not, not the good type of pride that you take in somebody who's accomplished something, but the pride that says, how dare you, don't you know who I am? The kind of pride that says, you shouldn't talk to me like that. The type of pride that says, that I actually deserve something. Because I want you to see where James goes with this. The antidote for the chaos is humility. Humility crawls in on cat's paws that ultimately destroys the last remnant of selfishness that creates the wars and fights that ruin our lives. We feel like fighting, and the last thing we think will actually give us triumph and victory is something like being humble. God shocks us often with what he uses to bring peace in our lives, to defeat chaos in our lives. Sin is such a destructive fire, yet it cannot survive the onslaught of humility. Spurgeon said, note that contrast and note it always. Observe how weak we are and how strong he is, how proud we are and how condescending he is. This doesn't mean God talks to us condescending. It means he'll lower himself to speak to us and then even lower himself more to die for us. And yet we operate in pride. We puff up, puff up, puff up. God is always coming down, coming down, coming down. He's worthy of staying up and comes down, we're not worthy of going up, but we always do. How erring we are and how infallible he is. How changing we are and how immutable he is. How provoking we are and how forgiving he is. Observe how in us there is only ill and how in him there's only good. Yet our ill but draws his goodness forth and still he blesses. Oh, what a rich contrast, says Spurgeon. He also says, sin seeks to enter, grace shuts the door. Sin tries to get to the mastery, but grace, which is stronger than sin, resists and will not permit it. Sin gets us down at times and puts its foot on our neck. Grace comes to the rescue. Sin comes up like Noah's flood, but grace rides over the tops of the mountains like the ark. Spurgeon again. Do you suffer from spiritual poverty? It's your own fault. 
for he gives more grace. If you've not got it, it's not because it's not to be had, it's because you have not gone for it. Because he gives more grace. He gives, he gives, he gives more grace. Verse 7, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So he starts with being humble. Why? Because if you, if you don't reach the point of humility, you will resist this word submit. I don't think I've ever, ever counseled somebody in submission where I didn't hear this word come back right away. But. And they get all the reasons why they shouldn't have to submit to anybody. Okay. The Bible is filled with calls to submit, whether it's all of us to God, whether it's Christians to their government, whether it's wife to husband, whether it's uh, whatever it is, these calls to submission are always met with a reason why it doesn't really have to happen. Why? Because we have a poisonous nature of pride. And why should I have to submit in any situation? And it's only getting worse. So he begins with a call to humility before he commands our submission. Submission within its proper context are great exercises in humility. Humility is at its best, is our best defense against wars and fights. Okay, can you even imagine saying, I have two really good friends they're the most humble people I know, and they fight like cats and dogs. It's like unimaginable, isn't it? Okay? It's like unimaginable. So he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So James also assures us that if we resist the devil, he will flee. This is because our resistance is based on our Christianity. It's the greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. So when you are humble and submissive to these things, now that power of Christ that's greater than the power of the devil is at work. And when you resist that devil, he's got no option but to flee from you. And not that he won't come back, but it is that he'll have to flee again. Spurgeon again, it's a wonder that the world does not submit to God. I have heard much of the rights of man, but it were well also to consider the rights of God, which are the first, highest, surest, and most solemn rights in the universe, and lie at the base of all other rights. Alas, great God, how art thou a stranger, even in the world which thou hast thyself made? Thy creatures, who could not see if thou had not given them eyes, Look everywhere except to thee. Creatures who could not think, if thou had not givest them minds, think of all things except thee. And beings who could not live, if thou did not keep them in being, forget thee utterly. Or if they remember your existence and see your power, they're foolhardy enough to become your foes. If God were a tyrant, it might be courageous to resist him, but since he is a father, it's ungrateful for you to rebel. There's no other way to teach these chapters from James except stopping at every verse. He has so much going on. Verse 8. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now Listen. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That's quite a contrast to what we get in the Old Testament. Think of Moses in Exodus 3. Angel of the Lord, we know to be Jesus because the name that the angel of the Lord gave Moses, which was Yahweh, the I am, is what Jesus said um, when he said that he preceded Moses and he gives the I am name for himself. And it's so clear to those religious leaders that he just claimed to be the God of the burning bush that they picked up stones to stone him to death. Okay? So at that burning bush scene, here's what God says to Moses. 
He says, don't draw any closer. Take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. Now compare that to draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What's the difference? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 can now say this. He can now say, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. There's no invitation to come boldly to God's presence in the Old Testament because Christ had not yet died. Okay. Um, the, only the high priest could ever see the Ark of the Covenant and he only on Yom Kippur once a year and only if he had blood with him. Okay. So if you were anybody but the high priest, you never saw the presence of God in that Holy of Holies. And even if you're the high priest, you only saw it once a year and you only could survive that encounter if you had blood with you because you as the high priest are supposed to die back there in his presence, but you're showing through the blood that something died for you in your place and God allows a substitute, doesn't he? It's always pointing to Christ as our substitute. So this Old Testament do not draw near has been replaced now through Christ with come boldly to the throne of grace, has been replaced by James's invitation saying, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And notice when you're invited to draw near to God, it's not with only once a year, only if you're super clean and holy, it's only this, only that. It says this, if you draw near to him, it doesn't say he's gonna do this, that, or the other thing for you. It simply says he's gonna draw near to you. Why? Because what's the most important thing God could ever offer you in your prayers? Himself. So if you draw near to him, he's going to give you that greatest gift. He's going to draw near to you. He's going to offer himself to you. Now imagine if in your Christian homes that was going on. Do you think James would be saying, where are all your wars and fights coming from amongst you? It's unthinkable. That type of humility, that submission, that killed all of your desires just to be right. That valued rightness over the feelings of your family. Okay, all of that humility just conquered. And then with humility comes joyful submission. With joyful submission is the invitation to draw near. And with your drawing near, you're gonna see that God now as this all-consuming fire will draw near to you and you'll be a part of one of those branches that is unharmed by this all-consuming fire of God. Feel free to comment in the middle of the study if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be fine. Okay, good. All right, good. Awesome. Yeah, we'll just make this a, a back and forth thing. We could do that too. It'll be back and forth in just a moment. But thank you. That's very sweet of you. Yes, okay. All right. Now, <laughs> cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, what do you think he has in mind here? I think he's thinking of Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, you're going to love this, Elliot. Be ready to, to compliment me. Yes, there we go. You changed the whole dynamic of the study. Psalm 24 says this. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can draw near? Who can go up the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? It says, he who has, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So what does James tell us? Clean your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. He's inviting you up the hill of the Lord, isn't he? He's inviting you up the hill of the Lord. Let's draw near with clean hands and a pure heart. So your hands are your outward actions. Your heart is your motivation for those actions. Because we know from Matthew 7, those awful verses that talk about 
Lord, Lord, didn't we do this good work, that could work for you? And Lord says, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, you worker of evil, I never knew you. Why? Because they had clean hands. They were doing, doing, doing. They didn't have pure hearts. They were, look at me, look at me. Look how good I am. Okay? So now the invitation to ascend the hill of the Lord is cleanse your hands. Do good things. But do them for the right reasons. Purify your hearts. So don't, be a, don't sin. It dirties your hands. Don't be hypocritical and double-minded about what you're doing. Don't do the outward action when the inward motivation, people don't know what it is. They think you actually are a good person for the good thing that you're doing, but you're actually performing for other reasons. So don't be double-minded, hypocritical. So now in verse 9 and 10, he's going to give you what the prophets, it's an oracle of the prophets. This is how the Old Testament prophets would command repentance among the people. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, why is he saying, hey, all that laughter, turn it to mourning. All that joy, turn it to gloom. Because in the call to repentance, in the call to people who are at war and fighting with each other, people that are covetous and angry, he's saying that laughter that you're enjoying is coming from a wrong heart. So turn that laughter now into mourning. The joy that you're experiencing from your victories are evil. So turn it to gloom. So humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's a common theme in Scripture. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you, right? If you exalt yourself, God's going to humble you. So I like to think of the Pharisee and the tax collector all the time. They go into the temple to pray. The Pharisee's like, thank you, Lord. You've made me a good man. You put me in a good spot. I have good things. Thank, thank you, you didn't make me like that man. Where all of society was said, that tax collector is disgusting rodent. He is definitely doesn't have a pure heart or clean hands. But meanwhile, the tax collector's praying, saying, I know I'm a filthy rodent. And I'm asking you to have mercy on me, Lord, because I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified, not the Pharisee. Because he humbled himself, so the Lord's going to lift him up. This man lifted himself up, and the Lord is going to humble him. The ultimate picture of that, and I did not think of this when I was preparing the study. I just thought of it now. So we're going to go to Philippians 2. the ultimate picture of what we're talking about here. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it starts by saying this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be like-minded with Christ Jesus. What's the mindedness of Christ that we're to imitate? It says, who, talking about Jesus, being in the form of God. Can you give, can you exalt anybody any higher than that? He's in the form of God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He's, he, did you ever hear Jesus say, do what I said because I'm God and I said so? Because you do that as parents, don't you? Do it because I'm your mother and I said so. God never did that to us, did he? Jesus never did that. Do it because I'm Jesus and I just told you to. All right? So he says, it did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Can you imagine that? It's so against our nature, isn't it? Make yourself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Who's this? El Shaddai, the God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I forget who said it now, so I can't give them credit for it, but somebody smarter than me said, it is more appropriate for a man to become a worm than for God to become a man. We are closer to wormliness than he was to being a man. He had to condescend more to be man than we would have to be to be a worm. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself as if that weren't enough. He humbled himself and became obedient. Now, who could the creator of the heavens and the earth ever be obedient to? Doesn't say himself. It says he became obedient to death. The very curse that he had to put on man, 
he now becomes man and becomes obedient to the very curse that he put on man. There's no hypocrisy in him, is there? Okay? Yet, death comes as a wage for sin, and yet he's sinless, and he's still taking it upon himself. Why? Because he's being a bond servant to his father. In Psalms, I can't remember where, because now I'm really free-winging this thing. But in a psalm, it says this. Jesus doing the speaking in Psalms to his father. He says, sacrifice an offering you no longer desire. He sees what the heart of the sacrificial system is not sincere. He says, sacrifice an offering you don't desire, but rather a body you prepare for me. Can you imagine that? This whole sacrificial system isn't cutting. You desire to prepare a body for me to be that sacrifice. Okay? And Jesus will say in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah says, Jesus says at that point, um, I heard that. You gave me the ear of a disciple, and I heard that, and I did not turn my back. So he hears about this. He doesn't turn his back on his father. He says, but rather I gave my back to those who would strike me. Okay. He's humbling himself as a bondservant, even to be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's not like his father said, listen, you've got to go and die for them, but I'll give you 90 years, and in 90 years you're going to sit in a rocking chair and fall asleep, and you're just not going to wake up. It'll be very peaceful and calm and painless. He didn't say that, did he? He said even the death of the cross is what he'd be obedient to. Therefore, where's some of my longtime students? Why is it there? What is it for? Always ask that when you see that word therefore. You have to know what you just read if you're going to understand what you're about to read. So because he so humbled himself, therefore, God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now, the name that was above every name to this point in time was what name? Yahweh. Says he has the Yahweh name. But now... What does Paul do with that Yahweh name? He says, so that at the name of Jesus, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus starts at the highest point. He's willing to go down to the very lowest point and because he's willing to do that, God brought him up to the very highest point and he says, I will give you the heavens and the earth as your inheritance. Okay. All right. James. So James puts it this way. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Prefer your hearts, you double-minded. He's inviting you to ascend the hill of the Lord, but you have to repent. So lament and mourn and weep. The laughter that came from your poisonous heart, let it be turned to mourning. The joy you receive from being right all the time, let that turn to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Okay, a couple things. One, this Greek word for to speak evil is the word katalalia. Now, katalalia describes the sin. Okay, you ready for conviction? He says, listen, don't speak evil of one another. Well, who are these evil speakers? Katalalia are the people who gather in small groups, in whispers, to pass on private or harmful information about another to destroy their good name without the person there to defend themselves. The Bible calls them gossips. It's catalalia. So he says, don't gossip, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Why? Because if you're speaking evil of your brother, this is their brother. That means Christ died for this person. He's accepted that. He's humbled himself. He's received the Lord as his Savior. And now you're speaking evil of him. The law says that that law has been fulfilled in that person through Jesus Christ's obedience to the law. And now you're sitting here going, I don't care about that. I'm judging him. I'm talking evil of him. Okay? So all the bleeding that Christ did for him, for his forgiveness... I'm ignoring and I'm now charging him with wrongdoing myself. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and 
he's able to destroy. So who are you to judge another? Verse 13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and, live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. This is just saying this. You're making plans, and in your plan making, you never mention if it's God's will or not. You're just saying, this is what I'm going to do. Now, that doesn't seem so serious, but let's look at the Apostle Paul. Acts 18, verse 21. Apostle Paul says this. I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. 1 Corinthians 4.19 But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16.7 For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Okay, So in Paul's planning... He says, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, here's where I'm going to go. If the Lord allows, if the Lord permits. Okay? So when we make plans without consulting God, yet we're people who don't even know what will happen tomorrow. So we're assuming upon a tomorrow that we haven't been promised. Spurgeon said there's two great certainties about things that are going to come to pass. The first certainty is that God knows. The second certainty is that you don't. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm really running into our Q&A time, but I just want to show you Jesus taught about this very thing in Luke 12. So I'll just read these six verses so you'll see Jesus is teaching on it. It's Luke 12, starting at verse 16. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build, build greater barns, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's somebody who planned, 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 never consulting God. And when he finally got all that he planned for and accumulated all that, he says, now I can just take my ease. Now I'm set. Now I got to the point that I always planned for and I always wanted to do. And... God said, you fool, because now I require your soul of you, and now nothing that you plan for all of this wealth will come to be. None of your plans are coming to fruition about all that you plan to be. Okay. All right. So James finishes here this chapter by saying, for judgment is without, nope, that's chapter two. He says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So now he says, it's not just the sins of commission that, are, that you actually commit that are charged against you. It's sins of omission. Good things that you know you should have done and you didn't do, you omitted doing those good things. You're charged with sin there. And, and Jesus will teach, to whom much is given, much has been required, Right? So we've been given whatever we've been given. And with that, God has expectation on what we do with what we've been given. There's a lot of good to be done. And if we don't do that good that's to be done, then that's sin. That's why I, you probably heard me say, you weren't saved for your benefit alone. You've been saved for the benefit of the many. 
many people should benefit from the fact that you receive salvation. Okay? That you've received salvation. All right, let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, Lord. And, and um, Lord, we're all been involved with these fights and quarrels. Some of us are still in them. Some of us have not talked to family members in long, long periods of time, Lord. And I just pray that your word, Lord, faith comes by hearing the word of God, that our faith has been increased, that we have been strengthened to do right things, Lord. And amongst those right things is to walk humbly before you. Because, Lord, if you give us tomorrow, tomorrow's a gift that you've given us. We haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. We haven't created a right for it. It's simply that you've allowed us to experience it. And in that experience of tomorrow, if you've given it to us, we pray that we'll be found doing the good that you have for us to do. We pray that we will be seeking humility, Lord, above any pursuit of being right. We pray that you would heal, Lord, our relationships through our obedience to your word. We pray that in humility, Lord, you would see increased submission to the relationships that you have us submitting to. And Lord, we would find that we are walking in the greatest of strengths, Lord, the strengths of our meekness and our humility, and that we would be getting the results that can only come from that humility we saw in Jesus Christ as he became the inheritor of the world and the heavens through his humble obedience to you. So we thank you, Lord, that he is our savior. He is our Lord. We thank you that it's your son whom you've given to us. And we pray, Lord, that he would be the recipient of great honor through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.